Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and chapter 2, excuse me, verses 4 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now Genesis 2, chapter, uh, Genesis 2 verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day of the Lord God, that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we praise you and thank you that you are not a God removed from your creation, but you are a God at work in and amongst your creation. We thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives, um, calling us to rest in Jesus and in his righteousness for us. We thank you for how you have provided for all of our needs and ask that you would use these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings that we have collected this very morning, that they would be used for your glory in order that the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we ourselves prepare to sit beneath your word, we plead with you and pray to you that this same gospel that we long to go out to all the nations, that it would be proclaimed to us this morning that we would be reminded that we are far more broken than we could ever imagine, 
But because of Jesus, we are far more loved and secure and accepted than we could have ever dared dream possible. We pray that you would take us to this good news this morning and transform us by it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And children ages three to first grade are dismissed now to Children's Church. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class this morning. Well, recently we began our our series on the book of Genesis, and uh, the past few weeks we've been talking about what it means to be fully human, and we've been focusing our attention uh, in Genesis chapter 2, and so we've, this is our third time in this chapter, um, but we have seen here that this is the ideal place to talk about what it means to be fully human, what is essential to our humanity. Um, And so far we've seen that we were made to work, that we're made to exercise creativity like our creator, and that we're also made for relationships with others. But this morning we're going to focus in particular on how we are made for a relationship with God himself. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in London in the mid, early to mid-1900s, he, in one of his sermons that, that I read a while ago, he argues something uh, fascinating. Uh, he argues that all of humanity goes through life with a memory trace, um, a deep memory, uh, as he puts it, that we have lost something essential to our humanity. Uh, listen to what he says. He says, we are all conscious of a sense, a memory, a recollection of having lost something. And we are ever trying to recapture something that we know we once possessed. He's saying there's this deep restlessness inside all humanity that we know we're made for something better, that we're made for something higher, that we're made for something greater. We're meant to experience, we know we're meant to experience deep satisfaction and joy and happiness and fulfillment in life, but it's constantly eluding us. We feel as though we have lost it. Um, Listen again to Lloyd-Jones. He says, we have an innate feeling that we were meant for something bigger and higher. There is in every one of us a recollection of a memory of what we once were. And though we have lost this, and though we have never known it, a memory lingers. What is this memory uh, trace, uh, this recollection that um, in all our chasing and in all our searching and in all our grasping just seems to constantly be slipping through our fingers and eluding us. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Tom Brady uh, won his, you know, set a re- another record, uh, won his fifth Super Bowl in this amazing come behind, from behind victory that I didn't even see because I went to bed at halftime. I thought the game was over and uh, came back and won it. Um, but a few years ago, Brady was interviewed by Steve Croft on 60 Minutes, and this was after winning his third Super Bowl. Um, and Brady said this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I think God, there's got to be more than this. Steve Croft immediately asked him, 
what's the answer? And Brady replied, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. What is this memory trace that we're made for something greater, right? It's that we were made for a deep, intimate, personal relationship with God himself. Lloyd-Jones wrote, my dear friend, you were made on that scale. Nobody else can satisfy you. No one less than the almighty, eternal God himself. You were made on that scale. And no amount of Super Bowl rings or money or fame will ever be enough to satisfy you. No romantic relationship, no success in your career, no amount of popularity, no, no amount of success in your parenting or respect from your peers will ever be enough to satisfy you. This memory, memory lingers on inside us all. We were made on such a scale, right, that nothing less than God himself could ever satisfy us. And until we get that, until we, until we get that, you and I, we are going to stay restless. We'll be searching and we'll be grasping but never finding. So here's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about this, this scale that we were made on. This is an incredibly high view of mankind. Um, we were made for a relationship with God himself. So I want to see three things here. We were made to hear God. We were made for intimacy with God. And finally, we were made to submit to God. Okay, first, we were made to hear God. Genesis chapter 1 introduces us to the God who speaks, right? Over and over, there's, uh, there's this simple refrain that keeps showing up on each day of creation in Genesis chapter 1. It's there on every day, and it's simply this, and God said. Every day, God is speaking, right? He speaks into a world, Genesis 1 tells us, into a world without form and void. That is, he speaks to a shapeless and empty world. And by the power of his voice, he shapes and he fills the world with beauty and with a wondrous and perfect order. God spoke. He speaks and he shattered the darkness and he shattered the silence with his voice, and he called everything into being. So Genesis is introducing us on the very first pages to a God, to the God who speaks. But what makes you and all of humanity unique is this. God spoke about his creation on every day, but he only spoke to his creation when he made mankind. Right, Genesis 1 verse 28, and God blessed them, we read this, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and so on. And in Genesis 2 verse 15 and following, we're told that when God put man in the garden, he spoke to him. Right, verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, right, you and I were made on this scale. We were made to be in a conversation with our maker with our Creator. We were made to receive His Word. We were made to respond to His Word. God's Word wasn't just meant to fill and shape the universe with beauty and order. His Word was meant to fill and shape you. Right? His Word is meant to bring you to life. His Word is meant to give you an unshakable identity in this world. It's, His Word is to assure you of His love for you. We were made to hear God. I don't know if you've seen these uh, YouTube videos, um, <clears throat> but I spend a lot of time on YouTube. Um, 
But there's these YouTube videos of um, these hearing-impaired patients receiving those cochlear ear implants, um, these implants that allow these patients to truly hear for the first time. You really ought to look them up sometime if you haven't seen them. Um, there's this one video with this little baby, um, and he's sitting on his mom's lap, and he's just sucking away on his pacify her, and then the doctor turns the implant on, and this baby's mom speaks for the first time, and this little child hears that voice for the first time and just immediately snaps his head around to look at his mother's face, and the smile that forms on his face, it is so huge, right? His pacifier just falls out of his mouth onto the ground and he never breaks his gaze, right? Lost in wonder at hearing his mother's voice the very first time. There's this one of this young woman who is trying to hold it, trying her very best to hold it together for the camera, but she just cannot stop weeping for the joy of hearing it the first time. There's this one with this guy, he's got a, like a tank top on, he's huge muscled guy, right? Burly man and he just becomes a puddle of tears when he hears his wife for the very first time say, I love you. And if you can watch those videos without tearing up, something's a little wrong with you. Um, Because the sense of joy and the satisfaction of being able to hear for the very first time the voice of their loved ones And God made you to hear his voice like that, to turn your head and for you to be in face-to-face conversation with the one who loves you. The voice of the one who, Genesis 1, he sings the cosmos into existence. The voice of the one who came and knit you together in your mother's womb. The voice of the one who measures the seas in the hollow of his hand. Right? You were made to hear that voice, that voice, for his voice to fill you with joy and to satisfy you. You were made on that scale, and nothing else could ever satisfy you. Do you know why words are so important? I mean, why it means so much for you to have one of your friends or maybe your spouse or somebody you care about to really open up to you. Do you know why you're so very careful with your words, and I am too, and why we're so guarded with our words? It's because we instinctively know that the function of words is to reveal, right? So when we first meet someone, we keep the conversation kind of surface level. We talk about college football and the weather and all that kind of stuff, what you do for a living, and we're scared to put ourselves too far out there. We don't know because we know that our words reveal. They always reveal. And that makes us vulnerable, right? Even in, so even in your most significant relationships with your best friend, with your spouse, we ache to communicate our deepest selves to one another. But it's still hard, even in our very best relationships, 
right? We know that words reveal and to let anyone see our deepest hopes, our deepest dreams and longings and fears and insecurities, that makes us terribly vulnerable. And it's frightening for us. See, we are aching to know and be known. It is the function of words to do just that, to know and be known. You know, theologians very appropriately call the Bible God's self-revelation. That's what it is. It is God speaking, right? It is His Word. And I wonder, do you read your Bible like that? God holds nothing back from you. He reveals to you His heart in His Word. He tells you His hopes and His dreams for you and for this world. I mean, isn't it fascinating that when God's own Son, Jesus, came, that John announced His arrival by saying, in the beginning, right, a clear reference to the first chapter of Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is saying, I am holding nothing back from you. In Jesus. This is the full self disclosure of who I am. This is who I am, and this is my heart. God made himself known. The Almighty Eternal God became touchable. He became huggable. He became kissable. He wants to be known by his creation. And you know what it means that he became huggable and kissable and touchable? Is that he also became vulnerable, he became dismissible and rejectable, and even killable. You were made to hear God, made to find life in His Word, made to find an identity in His Word, to be assured of His love for you in His Word. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But second, so first we were made to hear God, but second we were made for intimacy with God. Some of you know G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite authors, and in one of my favorite places in his book uh, called Orthodoxy, he talks about how fairy tales are more than true. And he wrote, he wrote this, I knew the magic beanstalk before I had tasted beans. I was sure of the moon before I was certain of the moon. But what's he talking about there? He's talking about a memory trace a memory that lingers. He's saying that all our fairy tales, that all our best stories, they are filled with memories of the deepest truths of life. And so he writes about Sleeping Beauty and its allegory that expresses our longing that even death could one day be softened to a sleep from which we awake. The intimate kiss of the true prince that comes and breathes life. Now look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Scholar uh, Derek Kidner, he wrote that this breath is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss. He writes, it was an act of giving as well as an act of making. Right? God was giving himself to his creation. He came to give mankind the kiss of life. And all our fairy tales of our sleeping beauties, of our poor cinder girls that could one day become Cinderella's, right? Of beasts 
that get transformed by beauty's unconditional love. They are echoes of a lingering memory, a lingering memory that you and I, we were made for intimacy with the true king, with the true prince, the true lover of our souls. You were made on that scale. Restlessly, we, tra- we chase Right, What we were made for in things like Super Bowl rings and fame, or we chase it in the arms of lovers. Exhausted, we grasp for this intimacy in the approval, in the appraise of our peers. Ambition drives us to find this intimacy in in the love and acceptance of a spouse, right, or from our children, or even through success in our careers. And it's not that those things are not good. It's that they're too small. You were made on a larger scale. You were made for true and deep intimacy with God Himself, and nothing less can ever satisfy you. Now, I don't have time to share a detailed explanation of this garden that God made for man, but let me at least try to rattle some things off for you to try to create somewhat of an impression for you. Because you need to understand that this garden wasn't so much a a piece of Mesopotamian farmland for Adam and Eve. Um, All the scholars of Genesis recognize that the garden, what it really is, is an archetypal sanctuary. First of all, the garden and Eden uh, in, in the Hebrew text, these are two distinct locations. They're not the same thing. Um... Eden was the most holy place where God Himself dwelt. And the garden was the outer court of God's dwelling place, the place to come and meet God, the place to come and be before God face to face. Language in biblical descriptions of the building of the tabernacle and the temple, they draw heavily from Genesis chapter 2. You know, the menorah in the temple and the tabernacle, that candle that looked like a tree, it was there to symbolize the tree of life. And the commandments of God that were in the temple, they were there to symbolize the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the bread of presence that was there was there to symbolize God's providing for His people in this garden. Right, the gold and onyx stone that we read about, those were a part of the temple furnishings and the priestly garments. This picture of life-giving waters that are flowing out of Eden, out of God's dwelling place, right? They become a major theme for prophets like Ezekiel, who talks about living water coming out of the temple, right? And in the book of Revelation, the river of the water of life, it comes from the throne of God. Now, that's a lot of information to throw out at you. And trust me, it's just a sampling of what's there in Genesis chapter 2 and how it points to the temple. But here's the big point of all of this is to say that God made you. He made mankind to be in His presence. He made man to be in an intimate relationship with Himself, to live face-to-face in perfect and unhindered fellowship with Him. That's your design, and you are made on that scale, and nothing else could ever satisfy you. You are made for an intimate relationship with God. Can you, can you think about the different metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about the intimate relationship that you were made for with Him? I mean, God likens His people to a bride and Himself to a groom, pledged to her, right, in dying faithfulness even in her unfaithfulness, 
Right? In Isaiah 49, God likens his love for his people to the love of a nursing mother for her child. Right? He asks, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And then he answers, even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You know, Jesus startled his contemporaries in his day when he told them to go to God like a child to his father and to call to him Abba, which is daddy or papa, right? The king and Lord of all things, the giver and sustainer of all life, the one enthroned in the most holy place. Jesus says you are to come to him like a child to a father. Two o'clock in the morning, who dares wake the king from his slumber? Right? No one but his child. In the middle of of the night, a child has unhindered access to his father. He can wake him up in the middle of the night for a glass of water and know that his father will get out of bed and get it for him. If you've been married, not, not, even, not even the queen gets that treatment, right? Um, I mean, the king might just roll over and say, you got legs, go get it yourself. But not, not the child. Not the child. Right? The child has that kind of access. God made you for intimacy with himself. You are made on that scale and nothing else will satisfy you until you come into your father's arms. Okay, third and finally... We were made to submit to God. Here's where we have to talk about this tree in the garden. God took man and he put him in the garden and he gave him this one command. One simple command. Verses 16 and 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Man was made to hear God. To hear this command of God, right? Man was made for intimacy with God. To live with Him in intimate relationship. But you've got to understand this. It is God who sets the terms for that relationship. God is God. And mankind was made to submit to Him. Now, I need you to think with me here for a moment. What's the deal with this tree and this fruit, right? Whatever this tree was... And whatever its fruit was, it was a part of God's perfectly good creation that he had made. So why did God say, don't eat from that tree? Um, Why didn't God offer an explanation about why, uh, why the fruit would lead to death? It was poisonous or it was toxic or (gasps) it was fattening or or something like that. Um, There was no explanation given because God was saying this. He was saying, I want you to obey me about the tree just because I said so. Just because you love me. Right? He was saying, obey me because I'm God and you aren't. I want you to trust my words because you know I love you. To not eat the tree for any other reason would have just been not to eat it for self-interest. Right? And that's not really submission. He's saying, I want you to submit to me just because you love me. 
Or, or you think about it this way. Why didn't God give a command that maybe made some more logical sense? Like, don't kill each other. Um, don't lie to each other. Don't steal, right? Um, but you know what? If he did, if that's what he had done, you and I would have thought, oh, I know what sin is. Sin is doing bad things. But God chose a tree, a tree that was good, a good thing, because God was saying, I want you to treat me as God and submit to me about this good thing, not because you can see and understand completely, but just because you love me. But you, you, you know where this story is going, right? Even if you haven't been to church in a long, long time, you probably know where this story is going. Um, You've heard it before that Adam and Eve winded up taking and eating of that fruit. Listen, the essence of sin isn't you doing bad things. The essence of sin is you taking a good thing and trying to be your own God with it. Why, why are we working ourselves into the ground? I mean, there's nothing wrong with work. God made us to work. Right? But when we take a good thing like work and we use it to be our significance, to prove our value and our worth instead of looking to God for that, that's the warped self-centeredness that leads to every slavery. Right? Why are we so unhealthily needy in our relationships? Or why are we so controlling in our relationships? Why are our relationships filled with so much manipulation and compromise? There's nothing wrong with relationships. You are made for relationships. But when we take a good thing like relationships and we use it to prove our importance, to prove our attractability, to prove our lovability or our security instead of looking to God, that's the self-centeredness that leads to slavery. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with sex. There's nothing wrong with alcohol. There's nothing wrong with accomplishing a lot in your career. But try to use any of God's creation to be your own God, and it will turn into chains of slavery for you every time. You are made on another scale. You weren't meant to be ruled by any of God's creation. Right? That's what those verses from Genesis chapter 1 are saying. You were meant to rule over creation and not be ruled by it. You were only meant to be ruled by one person, and that is God. The one who made you to hear Him. The one who made you for intimacy with Himself. But listen, we couldn't. And we didn't want to hear. And we didn't want the intimacy. And we wouldn't submit. To use Frank Sinatra's words, we have held our fists up against God, and we have said, I did it my way, right? I'm going to do it my way and be my own God. Centuries later, there was another garden, and there was another command about another tree, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was asked by his Father to obey him about this tree, the cross. You know, in the first garden, God told Adam, submit to me about this tree and you will live. In the second garden, God told his own son, Jesus, submit to me, to me about this tree 
and I will crush you into the dust. And out of love for his father, and out of love for you, he submitted. He became vulnerable. He became killable. And he was crushed, and he was crushed for you and me. And because of his submission, his tree of death has become to us the tree of life. Adam and Eve, when they fell into sin, the seed of a lie was sown in every human heart since. Right? And that lie was that God cannot be trusted, that He's not good, and if you're ever going to be happy, you need to become your own God. And it's true, isn't it? Because we are grasping, and we are searching, and we are chasing. And this haunting memory lingers that we were made for something greater. But we don't think God can be trusted with our hunger for value, for lovability, for importance, for significance. Jesus, the second Adam, He came, He came and He submitted to a tree of death in our place to take that lie out of our hearts. Here's what I'm saying. He came to break that spell and to bring us back to life. How does that work, right? How can the work on, His work on the cross break the spell that is so deeply ingrained in all of us? The researcher George Barna, he once conducted a survey of the top three things people most want to hear said to them. I don't know if you can guess what those three are, but here they are. Number one, I love you. Number two, I forgive you. And number three, supper is ready. Um, (laughs) The third one always gets a chuckle for some reason, but, but listen... This memory that lingers is that you are made to hear those words, not just from others. You are made to hear those words from God Himself. And to break the spell, you have got, you have to keep coming back to Jesus' tree, the cross. Because writ large on that tree is His love for you. Writ large on that tree is His forgiveness of you. And I really wish that we were celebrating the Lord's Supper today so that I could invite you to that meal because He's the one who says, supper is ready. Come and eat. But let me at least end like this. It was Jesus Himself who who quoted from Deuteronomy when He said this, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You were made to hear. You were made even to feast on God's Word because His Word alone can shape you and fill you. This book, this is His love letter to you telling you the links He would go to undo the lie in your heart that He is not good. Look at the cross and see His goodness. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have this time set apart today that we could indeed come before Your Word to hear You speak. Father, we pray that by Your Spirit You would convict us, that You would convict us of all the ways we have tried to run 
from your word, from all the ways in which we have sought to be our own gods. And that you would drive us to Jesus' tree, the cross, in order that we would see his tree of death transformed into a tree of life for us. And we would find our identity in him, settled and secure, that we would find there an assurance of your dying love for us. Father, we pray that you would use this good news of the gospel to root out in the deepest and darkest places of our hearts that lie that you are not good enough for us. We pray that you would do this by your grace and because of Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen.